0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Thursday the 11th of January. I'm Nick Grim, coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. Today, troops and police reinforcements called in as PNG recovers from a night of deadly rioting. And farmers count their losses in central Victoria as water levels rise along the Goulburn River. First today, Brisbane is racing up the nation's home price charts with a bullet. Property prices there have, have rocketed by 50% since 2020, driven by an influx of remote workers during the pandemic. And depending on where you sit on the home ownership front, that now means the city has the possibly dubious distinction of being a more expensive option than Melbourne to buy a home. Nell Whitehead has more.
2: When the pandemic hit, business boomed for Hazley Cush, a Ray White principal and auctioneer in Brisbane.
3: People focused on what was a bit more important, which was the lifestyle. We saw this influx of people wanting to buy real estate from interstate and internationally in Brisbane, and they were happy to buy them by just video walkthroughs.
2: And he says demand recently isn't letting up.
3: We did a unit-only auction in the week or about 10 days before Christmas. We listed, I think, 11 properties for auction, and I believe all of them sold either prior to or within a week of that event with multiple, multiple bidders on all properties. That might seem obvious to a lot of people, but it was only five years ago where you wouldn't even get one person to attend an open home.
2: He says the influx of migrants from overseas and interstates is driving up the city's property prices.
3: Certainly in 2023, the story was the Brisbane people were prepared to fight and win to buy the properties. It was the interstate person that pushed the Brisbane person to the new level, but the Brisbane person came out on top.
2: That's turned Brisbane into Australia's third most expensive city, according to data from CoreLogic. Prices there have risen by 50% since 2020. And with the average home now costing over $787,000, Brisbane's now surpassed Melbourne. Eliza Owen is CoreLogic's head of Australian research.
4: Brisbane has had a very short and sharp acceleration of growth. Uh, The factors really do come back to supply and demand, but to a very extreme level. Queensland had record levels of net internal migration uh, during the COVID period. I think the normalisation of remote work really drove a lot of people to the Sunshine State and Brisbane in particular, but that's something that, you know, urban planners and developers wouldn't have anticipated, and so the housing supply has fallen short.
2: Sydney remains by far Australia's most expensive city for property, with a median value for houses and apartments of over $1.1 million. And Canberra comes in second. Melbourne's median property, at around $780,000, is over 30% cheaper than Sydney's. That's despite it now being Australia's largest city, by some estimations.
4: Melbourne has just been better supplied with dwelling construction, particularly in the high-density segment, relative to population factors. Melbourne was also particularly hurt in terms of population growth, not only from closed international borders, but extended lockdowns. But overall, again, it kind of does come back to the amount of dwellings that are being constructed. And at the end of the day, it's just not keeping up with demand across Sydney and certainly not across Brisbane.
2: Home prices have also grown steadily in the nation's other big mainland capitals. The median price in December in Adelaide was $711,000 and it was $660,000 in Perth. A separate report from Domain shows there may be a glimmer of hope for renters. After two and a half years of continuous increases, rents held steady over the three months to December. Dr Nicola Powell is Domain's chief of research and economics
0: rents cannot
5: continue rising at the pace they were. It was an extreme period of time where we saw real hefty increases in rents. And what we've actually seen is behavioural changes in tenants. And what that means is people are opting for those house shares. They're getting a housemate in order to cost cut or they're foregoing an extra bedroom or they're looking to more affordable suburbs or property types.
2: Still, house rentals across the capitals were at record highs in the December quarter, up 9.1% year on year. The median rent for units rose by a fifth over the same period.
1: Nell Whitehead reporting. Floodwaters are continuing to move through Victoria today with communities in the state's north bracing for levels to peak. The record rainfall and wet conditions are a challenge for some farmers facing income losses as a result of water damage. But as those evacuated in recent days return home, there are also questions about what more can be done to reduce flooding risk. Bridget Fitzgerald reports.
5: With floodwaters moving into Victoria's major fruit growing area, the Goulburn Valley in the state's north, many growers there are hoping they've seen the last of the record breaking summer rain.
6: We hope it stays dry for the remainder of the harvest season there because we're starting to get into the a busy time of year. Michael
5: Cressera is the grower services manager for Fruit Growers Victoria. Heavy rainfall has already created some challenging conditions across the state while a hailstorm over New Year's caused significant damage to apple, pear and plum crops in the Goulburn Valley.
6: We estimate that around 500 hectares have been impacted at varying levels from you know 40% damage up to 100% damage.
5: Tomato grower David Churnside from Kerrang in northwest Victoria estimates he's lost up to 30% of his crop after heavy rainfall over Christmas.
1: Our contract was for 14,500 ton of tomatoes for SPC and uh, yeah, we'd estimate that'd be down
3: around 10 or 11,000 now and some... Growers in the area are also up to 50%
5: losses. Emergency services are expecting further flooding today through Marupna and Shepparton about 180 k's north of Melbourne. While floodwaters are expected to peak at moderate levels, well below the devastating floods of 2022, there are still many community members feeling anxious about the potential inundation. Jan Phillips is the manager of the Mooroopna Education and Activity
7: Centre. It's pretty frightening when you've not really recovered from a big event like October 22. But that said, people seem to be just being very cautious and vigilant.
5: She says watching her house and others being sandbagged again can be triggering, particularly for many people who still haven't returned home since the major floods of 15 months ago.
7: It does heighten people's awareness to... Uh, the potential of this disaster happening again, and particularly when a lot of our people in Maoroopna have not recovered from October 22.
5: Multiple flooding events in Victoria and other parts of the country have also raised questions about what more can be done in prevention and protecting ourselves from future disasters. Dr Brian Cook is an associate professor at the University of Melbourne and an expert in disaster risk reduction.
7: We end up with a system where we react and we spend a lot of money in the responsive phase and then when the waters recede, when the cyclone goes by, um, you know, when the the pandemic subsides, um, then our inclination is to be much more conservative.
5: Dr Cook says there's a need to take proactive measures. He says in high-density metropolitan areas, there can be a structural approach, including building embankments, putting in pumps and other methods of draining water. In regional and rural areas, he says more work could be done to raise homes or wet-proof homes so they can cope with some level of inundation.
7: The really tricky pointy end of this is when we're talking about land's in urban areas or on the fringes, peri-urban regions, where it's a bit debatable, where we might say, oh, we'd really like to build homes in, let's say, Melbourne or Sydney, right? There's a housing crisis. We're trying to encourage a lot of homes. And we'll be faced with the decision about whether or not to build in what are flood-prone areas.
5: Brian Cook says while buybacks can be effective, they don't solve the root of the problem. He says the regions at greatest risk are those that have a 1% chance of flooding in any one year, known as 1% AEP.
7: And so my own opinion, my personal opinion, is that we should really halt construction within the 1% AEP.
5: Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has today confirmed additional flood recovery support will be provided to communities in central and northern Victoria.
1: Bridget Fitzgerald. This is The World Today on ABC Radio across Australia. Streaming online and on the ABC Listen app as well. Thanks for your company. Let's go overseas now and in Papua New Guinea at least 15 people are now confirmed dead after a major riot and night of unrest in the cities of Port Moresby and Ley. The chaos broke out after a protest by PNG police, soldiers and other public servants over what the government's called a public service pay glitch. Jacqueline Breen has our report.
0: Night in Port Moresby lit up by fire. In video posted on social media, a major warehouse is engulfed in flames. Gunshots were heard in the night and health authorities this morning said they were treating gunshot wounds, serious injuries and burns. It began hours earlier in daylight after what had been a peaceful protest spiralled into something else. More video shows hundreds of people looting shops across the city and other stores in flames. Store owner, Alam Boyan, a refugee who was held by Australia on Manus Island and resettled, says his small supermarket was stripped
8: bare. My whole life is finished.
7: I put all my hard work, money, bank loans and refugee compensation money into this business.
0: The Defence Force was called in last night and the capital was reportedly calm this morning when Prime Minister James Marape held a press conference.
9: I want to firstly... Uh, from the outset, make appeal to every Papua New Guineans right across the length and breadth of our country. Uh, just because situation happened here in Port Mosby yesterday gives no uh, right to anyone to take to the streets to do anything and everything they feel needs to be done.
0: He said pay-related issues were brought to the government's attention, and lawlessness broke out when police were on strike. The government denies that public servant pay has been cut and has blamed a payroll error for workers receiving $100 less in their last pay cycle, up to half the weekly wage of a junior public servant.
9: Ill-discipline in police, ill-discipline in defence, ill-discipline in correctional services is not allowed. And we will look into the entire structure. The entire police leadership will be put under the spotlight. Uh, the entire defence leadership is put under the spotlight. The entire treasury leadership is put under the spotlight. The entire finance leadership is put under the spotlight. And of course, I do apologise. Uh, my leadership is also put under the spotlight. All this will be looked in totality as we try to restore sanity, restore normalcy, restore order back into our city.
0: PNG opposition leader Joseph Lang says the government needs to explain what's happened to public servant wages and is calling for calm.
6: The burning and the looting around the city, the chaos, is the result of opportunists. Took advantage of the situation and decided to uh, go on a rampage. Uh, that is what happened. It's really not a process. Who have um, rightfully expressed their uh, concern over tax increases, personal income tax increases.
0: He condemned the violence and looting of businesses, but laid the blame at the government's feet as well.
6: Unemployment is very very high. For example, the police force they had um, a number of positions available to the public. Say. 400 positions, and you have over 10,000 people lining up to, find, to try to get uh, the job. You have uh, 30 jobs offered by, say, one of the international hotels, or five-star hotels here in, in Port Mosque, and you have more than 10,000 people lining up. It's just bad. And I think the government may have underestimated the economic hardships and difficulties that our people are facing here. And so there are many frustrated people out there And and this is the only way they can air their frustration. This is what I'm thinking. Although I cannot rule out the fact that there are opportunists out there who just want to use the situation to uh, commit crime and uh, chaos in the country.
0: This morning, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said there are no reports of Australian citizens caught up in the unrest. He said there'd be no requests for help from PNG authorities at
1: this stage. That report from Jacqueline Breen and Marion Farr. Dozens have been injured and another eight people have died after an Israeli airstrike in Gaza as tensions continue to escalate in the Middle East. The US and UK have repelled the largest attacks yet by Iranian-backed Houthis on commercial ships in the Red Sea, while Washington's top diplomat tours the region. And as Kathleen Ferguson reports, today marks the beginning of a case against Israel in the International Court of Justice over genocide concerns.
10: Thousands pray together at Jerusalem's Western Wall for the return of hostages still being held by Hamas in Gaza. Esti Yari is among the crowd.
0: As we're nearing the 100th day of the war, and with uh, still so many of our people being held hostage by Hamas, it is really important to come here today in unity and to pray uh, for their release and to pray for peace here, that our soldiers should return safely.
10: Deadly fighting is continuing in Gaza, with eight more killed in another round of Israeli airstrikes. More than 23,000 Palestinians have died since the war started, according to Gazan health officials. The fighting began after the Hamas attack on southern Israel on October 7 last year, when 1,200 people were killed and 240 were taken hostage. Fighting is also increasing in northern Israel, at the border with Lebanon, The chief of the general staff of the Israeli Defense Force is Colonel Herzi Halevi.
0: There is not a square kilometre in Gaza that you do not know how to enter and dismantle. There is no such thing. After what you have done, it does not exist. After what you did, there is not a village in Lebanon that you cannot enter and dismantle. We will put you wherever you're needed and you will do whatever is needed.
10: Meanwhile, Hamas officials say the hostages held in Gaza will not be released until an Israeli withdrawal. Osama Hamdan is a Hamas spokesman in Lebanon.
1: When we speak about the enemy's failure to achieve any of its goals, we confirm that the hostages of the Zionist enemy held by the resistance will not return alive to their families unless Prime Minister Netanyahu and the staff of his failed war government respond to the conditions of the resistance, the first of which is a complete and comprehensive cessation of aggression against the Gaza Strip.
10: The US has sent a warning of its own after Iranian-backed Houthis launched their largest attack on ships in the Red Sea since the Israel-Gaza conflict began. US and UK ships repelled the drones and ballistic missiles. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is still touring the region.
1: And in fact, uh, the United States and the United Kingdom, two participants in Operation Prosperity Guardian responded effectively to the attacks just yesterday. Uh, We also had uh, some 20 countries come together to make clear that uh, if these attacks continue as they did yesterday, there will be consequences.
10: While the diplomatic efforts continue, the United Nations top court in the Netherlands will begin hearings this week in a case brought by South Africa. It accuses Israel of genocide in Gaza. Juliet McIntyre is a lecturer in law at the University of South Australia.
1: This case is brought on the basis of the Genocide Convention, and that convention actually requires all states' parties to take action to prevent genocide. So South Africa has said that this is the reason it's brought the case to fulfill its own obligation to take whatever steps possible to try and prevent any genocide that may be happening. She says
10: it's a very strict threshold that needs to be met to find a state has committed genocide and that it could take years for a ruling. But she says the court can take some action quickly.
1: South Africa is seeking what are called provisional measures. It's essentially an emergency step that allows the court to step in where it sees that the applicant has a plausible case. So it's quite a low standard. that doesn't need to be established that Israel has committed genocide.
10: Israel has prepared a legal team to defend the claim.
1: Kathleen Ferguson reporting. Well, as we've been hearing, it was just over three months ago now, on October 7th, 2023, when Hamas militants staged their attack on Israel, killing hundreds of civilians. But October 7th was also the same day a powerful 6.3 magnitude earthquake hit Western Afghanistan, by most estimates, killing more than 2,000 people and injuring many more. And while that crisis has received much less media attention in the weeks and months that have followed, the suffering there continues. And that's just where the challenges start for Afghanistan. There's also been drought, floods and the repressive rule of the Taliban contributing to the plight of many ordinary Afghans. One person trying to raise awareness about the situation there is UNICEF's representative for Afghanistan, Fran Akitha, who is currently visiting Australia. We spoke a little earlier. Fran Akitha, we see all too often that the rapid pace of world events and the short-term focus of the international media conspire to cause humanitarian emergencies like those facing Afghanistan to get lost from the public spotlight. Where do you even begin to try to combat those obstacles?
8: Well, I think that the the way to come back always is about the people that are suffering, the people in a country that... um most of them, with no responsibility whatsoever on what is happening to them, are suffering. And particularly the children, those who are innocent about what's happening. And I want to say very, very openly that uh, I think the Australian people have been extremely, extremely compassionate and caring about the people in Afghanistan, which I deeply, deeply appreciate.
1: There's been earthquake, drought, floods. There's the plight of women and girls under the rule of the Taliban. There's the nation's international isolation. Can you just tell me a little more about the predicament facing Afghanistan right now, as you perceive it from your position with the United Nations Children's Fund?
8: Well, now we are in a situation in which we have more than 12 million children in humanitarian need in 2024. And this affects um, issues about health, this affects issues about nutrition, education, child protection, water, you name it. And you go to the day before the regime changed. Afghanistan was the poorest country in the whole Asia. Afghanistan by then had more than five million children that had never put a foot in the school. So the events since then, The drought, as you mentioned, the influx of um, the, the people returning from Pakistan, the quake last year, the limitation for girls to go to school, to go to university, and many other things that are there, are compounded with a starting point in which just being born as a child Afghan, mamma mia, that was really, really, really risky. The child mortality was absolutely huge. I mean, the amount of children vaccinated was very limited. Afghanistan is still one of the two countries in the world, only two countries in the world in which polio is still prevalent. So it looks that you know, the goddesses one day decided to send all the catastrophes to Afghanistan. Well, I don't know. But literally, I think that's um, what's happening now is an accumulation of all these elements there. Do you feel you struggle sometimes to communicate the scale of
1: the problems there? Sometimes statistics can obscure the human cost of, of situations like these. Lives lose their significance when we're talking about them in the hundreds or the thousands. And in Afghanistan's case, we're literally talking about the plight of millions.
8: Yeah, no, you're very right, Nick, about, you know, sometimes the figures uh, muskets. But so let me just give you a different kind of figures. One in two people in Afghanistan, One in two people in Afghanistan are going to be served with a health facility that UNICEF is putting in place. In Afghanistan, three million children and almost one million women, four million people. Out of 40 million people, so one in 10 is suffering of malnutrition as we are speaking. So I understand that sometimes it's, it's difficult to grasp the figures. But we are talking about 40 million people country. I don't know, Australia is um, around similar um, size, probably, a bit lower. But imagine that, you know, one in two that you find in the street are a human being in desperate need of health, of nutrition, of food, of water, of sanitation, of anything. One in two, every other human being that you, mind in the, you, you, you find in the street.
1: Well, you're here meeting Australian political leaders. What can the international community be doing to help the plight of children and their families in Afghanistan?
8: I'm glad you asked that because this is part of my, my talking to any, anyone who wants to listen to me. I think that the temptation to abandon Afghanistan is very high. And I understand it's a difficult cell, a difficult cell, a country in which, you know, the rights of the woman are not respected. The girls cannot go to school. I mean, the only country in the world... With just girls, because they are girls, they cannot go to school. It's absolutely appalling. I understand the, the 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 fatigue of the of the of the political class, the difficulty for them to explain to the media, to explain to their constituencies, to explain to their taxpayers, saying why are you putting the money on this on this on these guys? But I think that keeping engaging with the actors that in Afghanistan, this can be NGOs, this can be UN agencies, this can be ICRC. I mean, the international and the national organisations that we are committed of the well-being of the people, of the opportunities for the people, of the survival of the people. Keeping this engagement, I think that's, that's critical.
1: Yeah, how do you even begin to measure the cost of doing nothing? Um,
8: well, the first uh, line of the cost of doing nothing is, are we prepared to have thousands uh, or hundreds of thousands of people just dying of malnutrition, of cholera, of not having a health system, uh, a basic health system to operate. Mothers not to be supported when they are just delivering in a country in which the maternal mortality is the second highest in the world, despite all the efforts that we are doing. Are we prepared to do that? I don't think that we are prepared to do that. I don't think that any politician, any human being is prepared to do that, knowing that it's going to happen. If we are not there engaging, then we are leaving these people to their own fate. For Anakitha, thank you for coming in and talking to us here at The World Today. It's my absolute pleasure and thank you very much for giving the opportunity of Afghanistan to be in the waves.
1: And Fran Akitha is UNICEF's representative for Afghanistan. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Nick Grim.